Well, it was while I was preparing today's sermon during this week that for various reasons, more to do with relaxation than inspiration, I must admit, I sat down to again watch one of my favorite films, the musical Oliver, the 1968 version with Ron Moody and Mark Lester. I'd quite forgotten, though, that when the film begins, and when I must have seen it uh, in the cinema on its release, now again in the DVD format, the first five minutes, five whole minutes of the film are taken up with an orchestra playing and a still single visual, a Victorian print, a backdrop of London, over which is the single word, overture. Now, I don't know whether that would keep today's kids entertained or not. You're a better judge of that than I am. But as the orchestra plays, they play a special arrangement which picks out some of the melodies that the theme that the film uh, features, you know, in its dazzling cho- choreography and singing, things like Food, Glorious Food, As Long As He Needs Me, and It's a Fine Life. Now, later in the week, I met an old friend of mine who's a musician and a composer, and I asked him what overtures were in musical terms and how they'd come about. Well, in the very early days, he told me, they were primarily a means of enticing the audience into the concert hall, away from the streets or the refreshments, in other words, to get them out of the bar. And later, particularly as overtures were used at the beginning of operas, they were a means of whetting the audience's appetite for what was to come, a way of introducing themes, hinting a tragedy that would unfold, or celebrating a romance yet to happen. And in the modernist era, overtures have become a musical form all of their own, sometimes a kind of poem or a celebration. He'd written himself an overture to celebrate the opening of the Tyneweir Metro many years ago. Now, I've since read that a number of biblical scholars liken the passage that we just heard, the first eight verses um, of the letter to the Ephesians, and they've likened it to an overture. It's not the only analogy that could be applied, and it's not the only analogy that's been used, but it's not a bad one. Because like a classical overture, the words that we've just heard kind of draw us together, assemble us at the beginning of what is to be said. And like an overture, the passage introduces many of the themes that recur throughout the letter, themes that become more familiar and expanded upon as the letter continues. So like an overture, it kind of whets our appetite. But it's also got a quality that goes way beyond the classical overture, and that is that passage's sheer breathlessness. Now, the considerate translators of our church Bibles these days have translated verses 3 to 14 into eight sentences for us. But in the original Greek, they are all a single sentence. Paul, as Philip told us last week, wrote this letter from a prison cell in Rome. And he wrote it with passion, urgency, and an absolute wonder at what he was sharing. And although we've had centuries to ponder the meaning therein, Paul was a man whose time on earth had nearly run out. And in that 
long sentence, the final words of which we're going to look at next week, Paul covers absolutely everything from the timeless to the immediate, from the cosmic to the deeply personal. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love and sin, blood and blessings. No wonder he's breathless, all in eight verses, all one sentence. Now, if I can, I try to simplify things if I can hold on to their main meaning for my sake and for yours. So this morning, we're going to look at what's there for us in those rather complex words. And I'm going to pass into the main three sections of my talk now. Think of them as the big picture, the people picture, and the personal picture. I've called them in my sermon handout that you've got there, a plan for the cosmos, a people for blessing, and a purpose for us. And I'm going to heartily recommend that you follow the thing in your Bibles on page 1173, because I'm going to mention quite a lot of verses. So I'm going to begin, if I may, with the big picture, God's plan for the cosmos. And that's what he does. First of all, Paul paints a picture of God's great plan for the cosmos, meaning the whole of the created universe of heaven and earth. And there are three features of what he says about that that I want to draw our attention to this morning. The first is that in our verses this morning, in those first ten verses, that single sentence that Paul wrote, it's clear that God is the one with the plan. Because Paul uses eight different verbs to describe what God has done, is doing, or will do. In verse 3, he's blessed people. A verse later, chosen a people. Then he's predestined that we're adopted by him. In verse 6, given grace in Jesus Christ. In verse 8, lavished riches on us. We know that from our verse the year. And then in verse 9, made known his will purposed in Jesus Christ. Finally, putting things will put things into effect at the end of time. So this is a really active God, continually bringing about his plan for the cosmos through decisive steps, steps that often bear the language of our relationship with him, and steps that characterize him as loving, generous, powerful, and self-revealing. We saw a great reflection of that a few years ago when we studied the mission of God together, a nine-month teaching series that covered all of God's decisive steps from creation to fulfillment. And we saw, as we see in this passage now, that God's plan is to draw his people and all of his creation to himself. People that are much more than made in his image, but people who have also followed his path of love for him and for each other. That is the mission of God. Now, the second feature of God's plan, God's cosmic plan that's mentioned expressly by Paul in these verses, is the sheer scale of the plan's timeline. In verse 4, God is active before creation. And in verse 10, in the fulfillment of time itself. My arms are not long enough to do justice to that idea And it's not an easy concept to grasp. But such is Paul's assertion of God's plan. We might think of it as pre-Genesis and post-Revelation. And throughout that timeline, God is both active and acting 
in the knowledge of all that the future will hold. So he has perfect hindsight to look back and perfect foresight to know what will happen in the world and to his people and the place that they and we hold within that. And his plan, as I say, is to draw people to himself. It's more than about relationships, though. He plans to bring all things in heaven and earth together in the fulfillment of time. And thirdly, on God's cosmic plan. You know, sometimes it seems to me that the easy thing in life is to set objectives for ourselves or our country or our business or even our church. You know, to be happy. We want to be happy. We want to, in our business, create 10 new jobs. Or we want to, in our church, build a new ministry centre. The difficulty almost always arises in answering the question, how? What's the strategy? And if ever anyone was in doubt about what God's strategy is for bringing the universe to himself and his people, then they need only read this passage. Because in eight different occasions, Jesus Christ is mentioned, and it is made clear that all rests on Jesus Christ. Referred to or named on eight separate occasions. Jesus is the means by which we're blessed. Verse 3, chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven. The Father's will was purposed in Christ. Christ's blood was shed so that we might be brought back to him, cleansed of sin. All things will be brought together under the headship of Christ. God is an active God whose past and future actions are accomplished through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the strategy, the plan for achieving God's cosmic mission. So Paul tells the Ephesians, God has a great plan for the cosmos. He's an active God, and he's been there before the creation of the world and will be there at time's fulfillment. And his plan is that his people and his creation will be brought together under the headship of Jesus Christ to the glory of his name. Now, on Wednesday evening this week, Mike Barton led the first session of the Living Course This is the course that's been set up, lasting six evenings, partly to follow on from life to the full. And it's a chance for people to simply ask questions and discuss with one another some of the main aspects of the Christian faith. And this week, Mike spoke about the idea of God as creator. Now, most people there that evening, Christian or not, found it reasonable to assume that there was probably a creator with a plan for the universe. But the point at which people began to really wonder was that this creator could be a God that knows them individually. In other words, in the scope of God's cosmic history and plan that we matter to him. And this is exactly the place that Paul goes to in these verses to Ephesians, because he says to them, in effect, you know these people that God has chosen to draw to himself now and in the fulfillment of time to be a wonderful new society and a new creation? Yes, they might have said. Well, Paul confidently continues, that's us. That's us. 
from the cosmic to the collective, from the timeless to the present tense, God's cosmic plan just jumped out at them. A people for blessing. I wasn't the only one having an interesting week in the Hull family this week. My son, Tom, is at the University of York and is seeking to become a sports writer and a sports editor of the university newspaper. And the, the biggest weekend of their year is this very weekend. It's called the Roses, when the traditional rivals of York and Lancaster take each other on in 50 different competitions, everything from women's water polo to ballroom dancing, from darts to American football. And on Friday night, the whole event was to be opened by England football manager Roy Hodgson and Greg Dyke, head of the FA. Well, Tom phoned me on Tuesday and was clearly a bit distraught because his newspaper had been granted an exclusive interview with Roy Hodgson, and suddenly everyone on the paper wanted to be the one who got to do the interview, you can imagine. And he said to me, you know, I'm the one who's put in all the work. I think I could do the best job even. Instead, the editors decided that eight of us, eight names, are going to go into a hat. Hmm. Well, I tried to calm him down, which worked to, worked to a very limited extent. He felt as though, you see, he'd earned the right to do this interview. He'd been the one on the touchline in the rain, sleet and snow. But he was starting to realize that feeling as though we've earned the right to something isn't quite the same thing as being chosen. I wonder whether the Ephesians when they were first listening to Paul's letter, felt a bit puzzled as to why they'd been so closely written into God's plan, as Paul had explained it to them. And in these verses that we heard, it's clear that they have been written in, in particular ways. I'd like to briefly consider those next. That they were chosen, adopted, and blessed. First, chosen. You know, if the... Believers of the church at Ephesus were chosen by God. It's clear that that is the case in verse 4. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. In other words, it's not that they were better than any others or worked harder. It was a result of two things, grace and planning. And you know, when we think about what it is to be chosen... I want us to bear in mind three truths that I think this passage opens up to us. I mean, lest we think that we can earn God's blessing through merit or hard work, verse 4 reminds us, he chose us. He chose us. He later continues, by grace. And you know, lest we think that we may know who God has chosen or will choose, we're reminded too that the choice is not ours to make. God does the choosing. Unless we think we exercise our will to choose God or not in some way and that God is somehow sweating on the result of our deliberations, verse 4 also reminds us that we were chosen 
before the creation of the world. The implication is that God, who has perfect hindsight and foresight, knows what our response will be before we make it. Now, Paul was saying this into a world where the common currency had been that the Jewish people, the circumcised, were those who alone had earned God's favor. But the Ephesians, who were a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, now realized that there was no one in Christ who could be excluded from God's plan. All were included. Now, we, you and I, don't know whom God has chosen or the mysteries of his grace or in whom God's choice will be manifest over time. We can't look into the future. So that's why we pass on the message of God's love to everyone. And that's why Paul was in Ephesus. And in large part, that's why we're here. They were chosen, and they were adopted. Let me briefly say that God's people that he draws to himself are not coming to him in a hierarchy of power and influence. You know, the chief constables don't hold sway over the sergeants in this new creation, or the finance directors over the bookkeepers. God's people are all adopted as brothers and sisters of equality, of privilege, and shared inheritance. And I don't mean like the John Lewis partnership. In Christ, all receive grace and are adopted. And the Ephesians were blessed. You know, as I read this passage over and over this week, I wondered how Paul was really wanting the Ephesians to feel. And I kept coming back to the word privileged. Chosen plus adopted plus blessed for me, equals privileged. Now, perhaps they were feeling pretty blessed already. You know, as we heard a week or so ago, Ephesus was, of course, a kind of London of its age, at its best dynamic, prosperous, eclectic. But Paul points out that they're blessed not from the earthly realms, but the heavenly realms. And in Jesus Christ they've received, in verse 7, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. They've already got the appearance of God in the sense of being made in his image, but through Jesus Christ they've also been made spiritually pure, holy, and blameless, and ready to play their part in God's new creation. They were blessed. So God's plan, plan for the cosmos, executed through Jesus Christ, is to bring together a, new, a people, a new society, ultimately into a new creation under the headship of Jesus Christ. And the Ephesians are privileged to be a part of that, Paul tells them. And you know, if Paul was here this morning, he'd say, you know, that's something for you too. That's something for you too. And that's how God's cosmic plan jumps out at us. From the universal to the personal. From the cosmic to Claygate. We too are part of his plan. 
We're just going to briefly explore that in my concluding words. A purpose for us. And I'm going to use an analogy here again. Again, it's not perfect, but it might help. I'm going to invite us to see this a bit like God the Father is putting together an orchestra. Or if it helps us to think about it as a choir or a band. That's the analogy. Now, God the Father knows how special this music is going to be. And he'd love everyone to join. But he knows that not everyone will answer the call. And those that do join aren't the best players, but they've got good hearts. They sense the privilege, the privilege of being part of something timeless, something perfect, something in tune. The privilege of being in union with one another as never before, with a matching of body and soul, and a cosmic coming together of God's will and ours. The privilege isn't the end. It's not just a good thing to join, because with privilege comes practice. God the Father would love the orchestra to play now as it will in his new creation, and each player must strive to do so with humility, dependence on him, and grace to each other. But in Jesus Christ, he's provided his orchestra with a great, gracious conductor, one under whom all our wrong notes have been made to sound perfect, and all our missed beats have become perfect timing. God the Father has already composed the score, and the music will be praised to God's glory. Will we play our part? Well, some of us here today have already taken up the offer and are loving, practicing, encouraging others to join and trying to follow the conductor as best they're able. And some of us might be struggling to believe that there is a place for them in this orchestra or choir. Well, they want to or can play. Well, you know, for this, there are no grade exams needed. Just a heart to be a part of it. Then I say, turn your eyes to the conductor and your heart may follow. Because there's a seat waiting for each one of us. In the weeks to come, we'll hear much more about God's plan, what it means to be a blessed people as the church in Ephesus, and what it means for individuals, for us seeking to play our part. And as we go through the sermon series, we'll hear a prayer that Paul says to the Ephesians at the end of chapter 3. And it's a prayer in which Paul prays that they will know God's blessings in full. And I thought just to pray that prayer together might be a good way to bring this time to an end. And as we do so, let's pray for ourselves as a church and for each one of us as individuals. 
that we may take up our place in God's cosmic plan and become a people of God who know his love fully. So let's bow our heads and I'll just read this short prayer. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is his work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever.